When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Managing Director of Charts and Data Operations at Billboard. I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Executive Digital Director, West Coast. And I'm Jason Lipschutz, Billboard's Executive Director of Music. Woohoo! Hello, Jason. Hello, Katie. <laughs> oh, hi. Um, golly gee, why are we all here together? We're celebrating 10 years of the Pop Shop. Ooh. 10 years of the Billboard Pop Shop podcast. 10 years ago this month, uh, October 3rd, 2013, is when the Pop Shop podcast started. Jason and I were the hosts of that inaugural episode. The Pop Shop was Jason's brainchild. And he asked me to be his uh, charts wingman. And uh, we've been making pop shop memories ever since. (laughs) It's true. I can't believe that was 10 years ago of just me. 10 10 years ago, me being like, podcasts are a thing. Let us make a podcast. And everyone at Billboard, uh, other than us being like, I don't know, podcasts? What? How? What are these? (laughs) And now, you know. We were, we were correct, Keith. That's that's really the main takeaway of this episode is that we were right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. T- to be fair, Jason was right. Um, I I was just uh, <laughs> he keeps saying like we were right. I'm like I was invited to be a part of this, and then I ended up becoming sort of the the sort of the constant as Jason departed uh, temporarily to another entity, and then Katie came on board. And then Jason returned, and then we didn't let him back onto the show as a regular feature. <laughs> That's um, correct. Yeah, because Katie wouldn't <laughs> let it let let go of her seat. Um, but, it was an uh, ego thing, honestly. You yeah. Know? Um, in in the ten years uh, that we've had the the show, uh, we've basically posted a show almost every week, every Tuesday, uh, without fail, in almost every week, except for probably the two weeks around Christmas and New Year's. So generally speaking, we have 50 episodes every year. In yep. total, we've now had over 500 episodes. And uh, in that time, we've had more than 300 guests on the show, uh, including Lady Gaga, Ed Sheeran, Dua Lipa, and Kelly Clarkson. I have a early Quiz Katie and Quiz Jason. Oh, wow. And either of you name our second most a uh, frequent guest on the pop shop. Like as in terms of like a celebrity guest that comes on to be our guest interview of the week. I I, I definitely have a, have a guest uh, or a, a guess of a guest, but I'll <laughs> let Katie go first. Well, I was also, I, I, I mean, it's totally a guess. 
I was going to say uh, Darren Chris. Oh, my, that was my guess. Yeah, it has to be Darren Kit. <laughs> Are Darren we right? Chris. Well, this is why I asked you for our second most frequent guest, because Darren is our number one most frequent <laughs> guest. That makes sense. Um, uh, the, though Darren Chris has not been on the show since uh, I, th I believe 2021, because I always have that lingering voice in the back of my head from Jason saying, Darren's been on like more than anyone, Keith. It's really true. Um, he's been on the show six times. Okay, yes. that's, no. not, that's not egregious over 10 years. Six honestly. times over 10 years, not that bad. <laughs> so who has been on five times? That is the second most frequent guest. Um, Troy Savan. You are correct, Katie. And yeah, I didn't even tip I was, you off. I was thinking about him, yeah. Um, we just had on the show like last week as well. Yeah, literally. So great, by the way. Yes. Uh, in terms of uh, acts that have been on for four times, I believe this is the limit. Uh, Dua Lipa has been on four times. Mm -hmm. Jesse Ware has been on four times. And Nick Jonas has been on four times, which is I'm a little surprised by that. That's amazing. All that said, um, it's been super awesome, fun to do this every single week. And uh, I'm so happy that Jason started this 10 years ago. And, and Me too. we can celebrate it. Well, congrats. I mean, you guys have been the co-host for uh, a large majority of the time now. So big congrats to you guys for putting on a great show week after week, year after year. And I'm I'm always happy to... Uh, fill in for for Katie. Uh, usually, I filled in on your maternity leaves. Yeah, um, twice. So you know, there you go. We just we just yeah. need uh, we just need me to go on some sort of leave of absence, and then it can be the Jason and Katie show. <laughs> we yeah, have never had Kate the Jason and Katie show. That's true. Never oh, once. Wow. Yeah. Someday. <laughs> yeah. I, weirdly enough, I don't. I don't think I've actually missed a regular episode. I think the only episode that I may have not been a part of was when like Jason would go rogue and be like, we're live back at Bonnaroo or something like one of those oh, yeah. episodes. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, without fail, I've been here the entire time. Um, all right. Well, um, wait, I have one other thing to say. Oh. Um, I just was going to say, like, I remember the very first time I was on the podcast and it wasn't, I wasn't the host yet. It was, um, uh, around the VMAs. I had gone to like backstage at the VMAs and you guys invited me on to talk about it. And it was Jason's secret way of transitioning me in, but I didn't know that at the time because then the next week he's like, you did a good job. Would you like to do this forever? <laughs> Cause I gotta go. <laughs> and the answer was yes. So thank you, you guys for including me in this. Cause I've loved it. It's a super fun part yeah. of the job. Wow. Yeah. It makes, really it, cool. Yes. Whenever, whenever Jason asks you to uh, do something, he probably has some ulterior motive happening. <laughs> that is how Jason operates. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all, very yeah. conniving, very yeah. diabolical. <laughs> um, well, shall we get started with this week's normal uh, compliment of stuff? Let's do it. Jason's going to stay here for the duration, by the way. So oh, yeah. you're, you're trapped. Let's rock and roll. All right. Well, uh, I didn't even get to this part, the as always part, did I, Katie? I know. I was like, did you? I didn't want to tell you your business, but I, you just kind of skipped ahead. Let's go uh, ahead with those intros now. <laughs> I mean, we did the intro part. But anyway, as always, oh. you might be familiar with the Billboard Pop Shop podcast because it's your one stop <laughs> shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Hey, Today, we've got chart news on how Taylor Swift achieves her 10th number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 
with a four-year-old song as Cruel Summer jumps nine to one, while Bad Bunny notches his third number one album on the Billboard 200. Also on the show, we have an interview with legendary record producer Clive Davis. He is pop royalty, and he's worked with everyone from Dionne Warwick to Whitney Houston to Prince to Pink to Usher, and we're asking about all those artists and much more. So stick around for our chat with Clive Davis. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com slash podcasts. All right, let's do the chart chat. First up, on the Billboard Hot 100 Songs chart, Taylor Swift's four-year-old Cruel Summer shoots nine to one, securing the superstar her 10th number one on the tally. The track was originally found on the 2019 album Lover, but found a new life in 2023 concurrent with its placement as the first full song that kind of opened the era's tour that Swift, of course, took throughout stadiums uh, this past summer. Um, I Technically, there was a song that preceded Cruel There's Summer. There's like a little taste of Miss Americana, but like, yeah, no, it's, it's, the, it's the opening song. It's Cruel song. Summer. It's yeah. really yeah. Cruel Summer. Um, well, the track became a officially promoted song to radio this past summer, and it became a streaming favorite as well. And it peaked at number three on the Hot 100 earlier this year. Uh, this week's jump to number one was uh, sparked uh, in part by the release of two new mixes of the song, a new live version of the track from the Eras tour, as well as a remix version. Uh, she sold a whole bunch of those singles. Uh, her streaming numbers were up. And I think everyone uh, in Team Taylor world, as well as Swifty Land, knew that this could be the week that she could possibly go to number one with this song that's been percolating for a while. And sure enough, it happened. So congratulations to Taylor Swift on a 10th number one. I'm glad Jason's here for this one, because this is like we've been talking, I feel like all summer about whether this song could get to number one. And, you know, when was she going to release a live music video, et cetera, et cetera. It's been the topic of uh, five burning questions. We've talked about it during the song of the summer race. So like Jason, like she did it. It's here. It happened. It just yeah, took, it, I feel like it took a while. And it's interesting that it's happening in October in the sense of, you know, you have some of these seasonal hits kind of circle back up. Think about like what the neighborhood is doing right now with sweater weather and what they're doing every fall at this point. But then, it <laughs> you know, it kind of dies back down uh, after that season. This is like it, it was it it flared back up in the spring ahead of the summer during the Eras tour was in the top 10 uh, of the Hot 100 all summer. But then, you know, you kind of figure, all right, it's September, October. People are going to move on. Uh, the Aerosmith tour is on a break right now. But no, it's bigger than ever. And, you know, like you said, it's uh, the the new mixes, but also it's the Aerosmith tour concert film. It's kind of everything. Like, I, I hear it all the time on radio. Uh, this song is just kind of not going away. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Jason uh, points out something that's very important. You know, the Eras Tour concert film came out a week and a half, two weeks ago. I think you, you have like a number of colliding sort of cultural moments that are all happening to help raise the visibility of Taylor Swift more than it already has been. At. <laughs> um, you have the concert film, you have her noted visibility on a number of football games uh, recently. Plus, you have Cruel Summer kind of uh, peaking at just the right point in time, concurrent with all these other things. So, I mean, 
I, I'm, perhaps there's now hope for Dance the Night to go to number one. Anything is possible. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Jason, I love making Keith talk about football on the podcast now, too, by yes. the way. It's, it's really oh. great. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. Like, I mean, Keith, we can get into it. I'm sure you want to. Obviously, Travis Kelsey's uh, yards uh, after catch and also just his targets have gone way up as he and Taylor have been together as well as just obviously the, the chiefs after uh, stumbling in their home opener on a, a six game win streak. Um, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, Jason, I think you clearly missed the episode where I actually had to ask Katie uh, what Travis Kelsey was. Um, his, his position. His and position. of course that, that launched a giggle fest. Oh, <laughs> he, he's, he's a, he's a wide receiver. He's a tight end. He's a tight end. <laughs> he's a tight end. And, and you know what? Sunday was National Tight Ends Day. So, and Taylor celebrated by going to the Chiefs Chargers game. It's just such dumb, <laughs> just dumb. Just it's, um, Amer- America's tight end sweetheart. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, with a 10th number one, Swift becomes only uh, one of 10 acts with at least 10 number ones on the Hot 100. She matches the 10 number ones of both Janet Jackson and Stevie Wonder, if you believe that. Uh, the Beatles continue to have the most leaders on the Hot 100 with 20. Okay, so next, over on the Billboard 200, Bad Bunny logs his third number one album as... Nadie sabe lo que va a pasar mañana. It debuts at number one this week. Uh, the set earned 184,000 equivalent album units in the United States in the week ending October 19th, according to Illuminate. Uh, and most of that activity was driven by uh, streaming of the album's songs. Also new in the top 10 tomorrow by Together and Offset debut with their latest releases, giving each act their fourth and third top 10 charting sets respectively. All right. That's the chart news, everybody. Did you guys watch Bad Bunny on SNL? I missed it. Oh, okay. I, I watched the whole yet. thing. The whole thing. I mean, this is basically a bilingual episode. I mean, there is so much, uh, so much Spanish in this episode and a mixture of like just playing Spanish for laughs, even if they don't do subtitles and then some subtitled things. And it's really funny. It is a really good episode. I really enjoyed it. So I, think, I mean, I when they announced it, my reaction that that he was not only performing, but hosting my reaction was like, you know, they've never really had like a dominant Spanish language host. Obviously, mm-hmm. they ha- they've had hosts that are celebrities that who speak Spanish, but obviously Bad Bunny is pre- predominantly a Spanish speaker and, and records in Spanish. And mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. I, I thought, uh, yeah, I, I got to catch it. I'll, I'll catch it. The rerun. And Lady Gaga and Mick Jagger were there, too. So, you know, as <laughs> as one does. Because they're way, in New York. So why not? My my uh, I, I were, were any of us, by the way, at that Rolling Stone secret show with Lady Gaga? Joe, Joe Lynch was amazing. Oh, yeah, my God. he covered it. He covered it for us. There was like an hour on that day when I was like, should I try to go to that show? And then I was very sleepy. <laughs> true, like truly that's what happened. Well, here's the thing. It would have been a struggle to get me in, but I was like, ah, because I, I just did a feature on Watt, who produced the album. So I was like, ah, maybe I'll try to go through, uh, hit up our guy, Watt, who's like the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Uh, friend of the podcast, Watt. Friend of the podcast. Was, yeah, exactly. And then it was like 3 p.m. I'm like, ah, it's been a long day. I'm going to go home. Uh, that's that's what happened. Oh, man. Man. That's sad stuff. Man. This is just, this is, <laughs> this is a perfect 
demarcation of 10 years of the Pop Shop podcast because <laughs> I started it when I was 26 and now I'm 36 and I'm at a different point in my life where I'm like, uh, it's a Thursday night. I could I could watch some baseball and some football. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Should we go? Should we do our interview? Is it time for our interview? I think so. Okay. <laughs> and now it's time for our interview with Clive Davis. The legendary record producer and executive regaled the Pop Shop team with stories about five of the biggest artists he's worked with over the decades. Whitney Houston, Dionne Warwick, Prince, Pink, and Usher. The timing of the interview was perfect because the Billboard staff had just chosen Whitney's I Want to Dance with Somebody as our greatest pop song of all time. So we got to celebrate the news with the man behind the song. And he also offered up a couple of personal picks for his favorite Whitney songs. He discussed how Dionne Warwick had stayed relevant over the years. He talked about debating the music business with Prince. He talked about Pink's evolution into a world-class live performer and why Usher is the right pick for the 2024 Super Bowl halftime show. And then Clive also gave us some details about a documentary he's working on that would take viewers behind the curtain of his fabled pre-Grammy party. Before, you could only see performances from the star-studded bash if you had a ticket, but the new film would give everyone access to decades of footage never seen outside that room. So you can hear Clive talk about all about that and more now in our interview with Clive Davis. Hello to Clive Davis and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, let us just say that we are both massive fans of pop music. So we are, are so thrilled to have you on the show today. Um, and we thought we could start with some good news because Billboard just put together our list of the 500 greatest pop songs of all time. And coming in at number one is one that you are very familiar with, which is Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody. Um, so obviously you were with Whitney for that song and from the beginning. So what, what do you think it is about that song that has stood the test of time? I think it's a combination of the song itself. And I think it's what Whitney has done with it. Um, when I first heard the demo and I assume I encourage you guys to hear the demo, you really would have thought that, um, it was a song for Olivia Newton-John. I mean, it was demoed in that fashion. Um, and um, yet in studying the lyric um, and in studying the melody and um, everything about it, uh, I felt uh, that I would present it. The way Whitney and I worked was that I and my A&R staff would gather uh, listened to hundreds of songs, okay? And then we would narrow it down to about 18. And no time was it ever different in her professional life. She and I would meet to narrow it down from 18 to about 12. And um, for whatever the reason, uh, you would never know it, think it, or what have you, and yet our taste, our musical conversation, we were in sync. I refer you to an early Rolling Stone interview that she gave because it was so easy to say, well, and it's true that probably at the very beginning, uh, she deferred to my expertise and what I had done with Dion and Aretha uh, and extended family members. Um, but 
I played her the demo of I Want to Dance with Somebody, and I said, obviously, you know, the vocal arrangement, it's got to be totally rearranged in the track. I said, but, you know, it, it should be synonymous with I want to go to bed with somebody, not I want to just simply dance with somebody, which she totally uh, got. I would say, in looking back at favorite all-time performances, um, her performance of that song, uh, I referred the two of you to, it was Arista's uh, 15th anniversary concert. Uh, it was published, it was uh, televised, uh, it's on CBS, and by the time she did that, uh, two or three years after we released the record, the arrangement was so sensual. She prowled that stage at Radio City. It was the 15th anniversary of Arista. It was on CBS Network. And I was struck by how totally transformed it was into really an extension of Whitney's genius. Um, because, yes, she was known for her great ballads, um, The Greatest Love of All, Ultimately I Will Always Love You. And nobody could sing those songs the way she could sing them. But when she prowled that stage at Radio City and the percussion and the drums were uh, moving her forward. I couldn't think of any ballad singer in history who could diversify with versatility and prowl the stage, getting the audience out of its seats roaring as she moved it higher and higher. So that... Um, um, that's one of the great real performances I refer you to. You get it from the CBS Network TV show. Um, but it clearly shows that, you know, you can you listen to a song on a demo, but that doesn't mean you record it that way or ultimately perform it that way. It proved to be a vehicle um, um, for an all-time great singer uh, to show her versatility and to operate on every level so that uh, that song uh, went to the top of every chart, including dance chart, uh, R&B chart, pop chart. Uh, it appealed to all uh, genres, um, and uh, has certainly stood the test of time. It has. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that uh, maybe, well, I know will be difficult to anyone, but especially difficult for you. So um, you may demur and not answer it. But um, is that the Whitney song that you would have chosen as the very best pop song of all time? Or would you have had perhaps a different pick? Well, that's such a very good question. Look, I think that's a great song. I mean, without influencing your result, um, there are two other songs 
if not three, that considering my personal relationship with Whitney, uh, that really particularly stand out in memory. All of them do, if you not to be sweet talking yet. But when I first auditioned her, first audition, you'll see it in Whitney, authentic and true, the movie. Out of nowhere, she sang The Greatest Love of All. And I had commissioned that song. Uh, for the life of Muhammad Ali, the greatest, it was called the movie. And I met with Michael Massern. Um, he and then decreed and written this song, The Greatest Love of All. I had a record out with George Benson at one top five, I think, R&B. Um, but, you know, that was five, six, seven, eight years previous. And all of a sudden, this teenage girl comes up there. I never met her. I'm in the audience, and she sang the greatest love of all, and of course, the meaning, the lyric, children, um, everything about the song. She found more meaning than I knew that Michael Orlando even had when they wrote it. So that that song, in particular, um, certainly has stood the test of time of being a classic, classic ballad, classic number one, um, as being particularly meaningful, because uh, it was the first time I had ever heard her sing. I didn't even know she knew the song. And the other song is that I was leaving Arista, okay? I was forming Jay, excitement, Never thought I'd get $150 million to fund a brand new label with the same executive staff as I had at Arista, okay? And it was the last pre-Grammy gala before I was to leave. And the show that year, which normally has eight to ten artists, had two artists who had just enjoyed incredible Whitney with My Love Is Your Love was right on top of her game. And Supernatural with Carlos Santana. So that year, as I was leaving, we had only two orders. And Whitney, because I was, the only thing I couldn't do was that I couldn't work with Whitney or Barry or Kenny G anymore. But other than that, we had the same executive team, etc. Uh, and she came to the stage and she sang two songs that are right up there that in my particular memory were so poignant, touching, moving that I don't and will never forget it. She sang, I will always love you, just to me. And she sang, I believe in you and me, just to me. And, of course, we were to work later again, and it was to get back Arister, et cetera. Um, if you watch my documentary on Netflix. Um, but so I would say personally, I want to dance with somebody, which is so brilliant. Um, in my memory, it has to be as moving and special as the greatest love of all on either of those two songs.
there's a lot to choose from with Whitney to say the very least. So yeah, um, you know, switching no, I gears. I want to tell you Whitney's story. Please, because it is only hinted at in um, in uh, the movie because there was only one song in my working group. The way that we worked is that the two of us, I and my and Austin, would listen to honestly hundreds of songs. We'd narrow it down to eighteen. Then I would meet with her, and we narrow 18 to, let's say, 12. Um, there was only one time that Whitney said, God, I don't relate to that lyric. She said, I, 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 I can't understand it. And that was a babyface song called Why Does It Hurt So Bad? And the guy rejects the uh, female vocalist. And she says, why does it hurt so bad? And here I'm meeting with Whitney, and she says, you know, that's alien to me. A, it's alien to my religion. God doesn't want me to be with this guy, or he would not feel that way, number one. Number two, I have enough self-worth that if somebody rejects me, I'm confident I could find a better person, better guy who can, um, uh, I could have a more fulfilling relationship with. And I looked at her, true story, and I said, look, boy, are you privileged. I said, I want to tell you, I said, that is not a normal universal emotion. I have no interest. I never took a royalty in any capacity, producer, anyway. I said, so, but the song is a universal emotion, Whitney. I said, if you're in a monogamous relationship with someone and that other person either betrays you or rejects you, you hurt on the receiving end and you hurt so bad. She says, well, not, not in my lifetime. So we, I took the cassette, it was a cassette, with the lyric, I put it in the top right-hand drawer next to my desk. After she left, I called Kenny, babyface up, and I said, look, first time, only time. She doesn't feel it. Well, she doesn't feel it, I can't, but please, please, please do not take this to anyone else. I said, let me hold it. It's a lot to ask of a writer, but he said, okay, it's Whitney and you, okay. Fast forward, it was during that period, we had only movies, and Whitney calls me up, and she says, I really want to come in and have lunch with you, and so let me come in and let's just spend time together. So she did, she had a usual hamburger and came into my office and we discussed a little bit about her personal life. And then out of the blue, she says to me, you know, only once did you play a song for me that I didn't relate to. We didn't both agree to do it a certain way, arrangement wise. And I don't remember the title, I don't remember, but I do remember that I wasn't at all feeling the lyric. What song was that? Has it been recorded? I said, no. 
She says, would you remember the song? I said, I not only remember it, I have it in my right hand drawn. I pulled out the cassette <laughs> with the word. I just so happen to still have it here, Whitney. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I do. It's exactly the way you're saying uh, it, Keith. And so I played it for her. She looks at the lyric and she looked up. She says, I get it. I get it now. I understand. I'm hurting that bad. And so she recorded. So anyway, that's my um, Whitney story. That's uh, incredible. Ahead, incredible. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that uh, because we were going to switch gears on you and uh, we would have missed out on that. So, um, you know, obviously you have so many pop legends that you've worked with and we wanted to ask about a few. So Dionne Warwick is actually having a real moment right now between her beloved Twitter account where she's interacting with a lot of today's stars and also the new sample of Walk On By from Doja Cat's new song, Paint the Town Red. Uh, what do you think it is about Dion? You know, she's basically just as relevant in pop culture right now as she was when she debuted on the Hot 100 herself back in the 1960s. Like, what what is it about Dion? Dion is unique. Dion is an old timer. It is true of old timers. Um, I've got to say in general, um, at a milestone birthday I had last year, I had a number of artists come and chat among them. Many people, friends, family, those that I work with. And what I'm most proud of is the fact that 40 to 50 years after I signed Barry Manilow, Patti Smith, Carlos Santana, they're still headlining. Dan Warwick is an all time vocalist. There is nobody that I can't think of any other singer initially, who could have found the essence of the Backrack David classics, those very hard to sing, lyrically involved uh, melodies that trip the light fantastic. It was Dion Warwick. No one singing Backrack David could have floated through it as impactfully as her. And then at a dinner party we recently uh, were together. I see her all the time. She's I'm being honored by the Bet Midler charity later this month in New York. And uh, she, of course, not of course, but she's one of the entertainers um, on October 27th. Um, so our life continues to go together. But she said, you know, Leslie Uggams was at a dinner with us, and she said, you know what you did when you signed her and didn't let her leave the industry because she had gone to Warner's. She was no longer with Backward David. She hadn't had a hit in a few years. I was only given two songs on each Barry Manilow album because he writes, and I got this song, I'll never love this way again. And I said, my God, it'll be five years before we record it. And I asked her, she said, I'm ready to leave the, I said, the industry is not ready to leave you. I said, you've got to sign, we can do this song. I had Barry arranged and produced it. 
And that album, she won female pop, Grammy, artist, and female R&B with Deja Vu. Uh, and it began our life together. She said, you showed I could have hits with songs other than Backward David. And that's why it was so meaningful, because I had not had hits with really any song commensurate with what we did with Backward David songs. And whether it was that song or Deja Vu or Heartbreaker or uh, that's what Friends of Four, um, I still get mail from musicians that with artists like Dion and Aretha and Luther and Rod Stewart and Carlos uh, to show that if you're timeless, your career can last many decades. Um, and Dion is the perfect example of it. I love the fact that you're bringing it up. I love the fact that you're bringing it up from the perspective of how relevant on social media, uh, with Walk On By on the Doja Cat record. Um, when Bette Midler asked me two weeks ago, well, who, you know, she told me two entertainers that she had. I said, well, what would you call Dion? She said, Clive, let me tell you, Dionne Warwick perhaps is my favorite pop vocalist of all time. She says, what a thrill that would be for me. So anyway, that, that brings you a little up to date on Dionne. Yeah, um, I, I, I got to ask the important question here, Clive. Um, by the way, we've had Bet on the podcast before, and she is uh, one of the greatest, obviously. Um, but... Most importantly, what costume are you going to wear to Bette Midler's uh, gala uh, for Halloween? I'm not, um, I really not big on costumes, okay? So, but answering your question candidly, um, we're, what, about two weeks away. Right now, I'm leading this to a simple mask. Okay. Okay. Um Someone presented the idea, so I'm contemplating it, of a cape, um, a phantom of the opera cape, a cape. Um, it could be elegant, so I told, still, still I told very that formal. Lady, I told that lady, if you find a great cape to cover my dazzling tuxedo, I said, I... I'll consider wearing that. Only, only if the cape enhances the tuxedo, really. That's the only way that it you're, can go. You're right. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to quote you. <laughs> without, uh, without question. Uh, we also wanted to ask about Prince, who, of course, released his album, Raven to the Joy Fantastic, with Arista uh, back in 1999. How did you end up working with Prince, who, of course, had famously, you know, a very, you know, heated relationship with the whole idea of the music industry and labels as a whole. So how did how did you end up teaming up with him in 1999? I've got to tell you, we bonded unexpectedly over an issue on a point that I never would have uh, contemplated. Um, he had done that this album. I had no either participation, conversation. He had completed the recording of the album and he called me up and he said, I'm going to give it to you for nothing if you market it with me. And uh, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, we'll 
do some concerts together in a few cities, and um, it will have your endorsement, which it did. And uh, it was a song in there, the greatest romance ever told, something close to that. Ever sold, yes. Um, and, but although the album is not one of his best-selling albums of all time, he became fixated on an issue with me. And every time he called me, he expressed his stronger words and disdain for the compulsory license provision of our laws and how he hated the fact that there is a compulsory license provision which forces composers for a given set amount to allow the recording of that song. He felt that the composer totally should have that right within himself or herself. And so at first we began talking about it. I was not sympathetic to his point of view. And I presented the other side. I said, I really think there are very few people that will feel about this issue. I said, you really are. And, and a, a mere intensity became a passion. That's all he wanted to talk about. And to the point where one day he called me, he said, Clive, I got a great idea. I said, what? He said, I've been on this issue. I've thought about it. I've discussed it with a lot of people. I keep discussing it with you because whether it's your background, since you were a lawyer at one time or not, I find you a worthy adversary of mine on this issue. And I would like to have, and for us to record, both of our points of view on this issue, and we'll sell it on a CD. I was stunned. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you accurate. I said, you know, I think you're the only person in the world who would buy it. I said, I put up with it because you're fascinating and you've got a mind that is incredibly uh, gifted and complex and uh, meaningful. Um, so that we discussed it. He was serious. He brought it up and he said, let us record this and let us come out with it on a CD. I, I sort of laughed at the idea because I didn't think anybody would buy it. But it was a fascinating exchange with a brilliant musician, gifted man. So Katie's going to be upset with me. I'm going to ask something that maybe you won't have an answer for <laughs> and that maybe you weren't prepared for. So if you want to just say, oh, I don't have an answer for that and we can move on, I understand. However, uh, I'm in London and I just saw the opening night of Madonna's new tour. And in the show, she has a moment where she acknowledges Prince. So I'm, I am tying this into something we just talked about um, because she plays a little bit of a song called Act of Contrition that was on her Like a Prayer album, which Prince played guitar on. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering, 
also, I'm a big Madonna fan. I'm wondering, at any point in your career, did you ever work with or come close to working with Madonna in any capacity? I did not um, come close, but I'll tell you, it was at a charitable evening, charitable gift fundraising evening that I really met her for the first time. And we chatted briefly. And I said, you know, I've got to tell you, relating it to Whitney, because obviously it was that era, yes. the two were dominant figures. And I said, one day Whitney came to me and she said, yeah, we've having seven number one it's fabulous. I'm pinching myself. But I'm being, most of the critics are rock critics. And you only get respect if you write your own songs. And I, should I write? I'm being approached everywhere to collaborate, to write. And um, I want to know what are your thoughts on that? And she added, Madonna is now co-writing. Janet Jackson is co-writing. She mentioned those two names. Should I? And I said, look, I have no interest, or there's no economic interest in any of these songs. I never took a royalty in any capacity for producing or anything. I said, but A, I'm going to keep the bar up there at our meetings so that if you do write the criteria, you got to write as good a song as I want to dance with somebody or saving all my love for you or the greatest love of all. And I said, of course I want to write with you. Your first album sold 22 million worldwide. The second album sold 23 million. Do you know how much money they would make? So of <laughs> course, you know, I mean, it's so understanding that they want to collaborate with you. She never brought the subject up again. And Madonna looked at me and she said, look, with a voice like hers, I never would have brought that subject up to you either if I had seven consecutive number one hits and sang like uh, Whitney. So I, I totally get it. <laughs> Love that. Um, Katie, I'm going to go ahead and ask the next question. Um, go for it. I don't, have a, I don't have a good segue. But um, <laughs> uh, Pink... Uh, is someone that you worked with uh, from her first album in the year 2000. Um, and fast forward to this year, and she just wrapped a quarter billion stadium tour and is about to launch a new arena tour. Uh, did, did anyone know back then in 2000 that more than two decades later into her career, that she would be selling out stadiums across the world and flying literally through the air <laughs> right. on wires. <laughs> you know, backing up, I said what I said a few little while ago in our conversation. The fact that artists like Pink, like Bruce Springsteen, Santana, and others are still selling out arenas. Um, were never contemplated by me 
when I signed the artist, all you knew, I didn't sign Pink. Pink, for the record, was on the face record. She came out of the L.A. Reed and Kenny Edmonds, uh, the face records. I met her because we promoted her records. We sold it. We marketed uh, it. I never had um, much or if anything, to do with her creativity. Um, but she was impressive uh, from the very beginning. And unexpectedly, uh, she uh, developed uh, this incredible um, electrifying ability uh, as a live performer to fly, to do things in person that you never would expect. So I'm going to analogize this, if I might, because the example you picked was on the face records. I've admired her, promoted, supported, believed in Pink from the beginning, and I marvel at her in-person ability. When I signed Bruce Springsteen, he never moved. He was at Max's Kansas City. He was a folk lyric rock artist with fabulous imagery. And he stood there uh, in those small little clubs, never had to move as he sang uh, his song. So segue to 1973. Uh, he was out maybe a year or two. And I was making a point because the New York Times had a front page headline, Is Rock Dying? Why did they say it? Because Bill Graham was closing the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West and his contemporary music over. I took it very seriously. And I took the Amundsen Theater out in Los Angeles. Big stage, like Radio City Music Hall. And I had promoted <clears throat> seven nights in a row, mixing and matching Springsteen with new writers of the Purple Sage, with um, uh, Santana, Miles Davis, uh, all different kinds of artists to show the vitality and diversity <clears throat> of contemporary music. Okay, we go to rehearsal. Bruce comes out, I'm sitting there in the maybe three, four, five thousand seater, and he's standing there being dwarfed by the stage. And it caught me, I said, you know, I've got to be careful, it's a very sensitive area. So I walked up to the stage and I, I said, Bruce, you've been dwarfed by the stage. Would you consider, is there any piece of material? And I walked him from one side of the stage to the other side of the stage. Is there any material where you can move and take advantage of this rather than be stationary? And um, he did what he did. Segway. Two years later, I'm now heading Harris to records. He and I are no longer working together, but we're close as we always have remained. And John Lando calls me and said, Bruce, 
is getting ready with the third album. And he's playing the bottom line. And he really wants you to come and see him perform. So I said, of course. So I, I was very friendly with Lou Reed at the time. And I took Lou and we go down to the bottom line. And we sit there. I mean, Lou didn't react the way I did. I was shocked. Here at the bottom line of 500 seat, wonderful institution. He was playing with the E Street Band. He not only moved, but he jumped on every table at the bottom line. I mean, it was jaw-dropping. I mean, this was someone, I had no idea that he, like paint, do I make that analogy? I had no idea that he would develop into whom I consider the greatest live performer. People fly everywhere to see him, different every night, electrifying, owning the stage the way he owned the bottom line, every station jumping, uh, every table jumping everywhere in the most electrifying, real form. So the set is over. I say, Lou, I've got to go backstage. I said, just stay here. And I'll be with you in a minute. And I go to the front, small club, and the door to the dressing room was open. And I look in, and there is Bruce by himself sitting on a chair. And I walk in, he looks up, and he says, Clive, did I move around enough for you tonight? <laughs> I'll never forget that. And he doesn't forget it. He's wonderful with his reminiscences. So, yes, there are times that you sign a notice at the beginning, and you don't know how they will develop. You don't know all the skills that uh, you, you sign them for one reason, their material or their voice or whatever the prime reason of uniqueness is. Uh, Pink is one of those artists, as is Bruce. They have developed into electrifying live performance. Uh, we had one final artist we wanted to bring up to um, Usher, uh, who was also part of the face. He was just announced as a Super Bowl halftime headliner next year. Um, why do you think that Usher makes sense for the 2024 Super Bowl halftime show? Because Usher is timeless. His hits that go back years. Um, and, um, you know, you're normally an, an artist. God, I think he was 14 when I met him. Um, he, um, it's hard. 20 years, 30 years goes by. Now, today, hip-hop dominates um, maybe too much. I want to see a new Springsteen or Dylan. I want to see a new Whitney or Aretha. Um, apart from understanding um, how talented so many of the hip-hop artists are. At my last Grammy party, I had a whole tribute to hip-hop with Little Wayne and Swiss Beats and Timbaland. Um, and... Um, but Usher, you know, it's easy when an artist 
gets into his 30s and has been in the business 15 years and then gets into his 40s, will he last? Will he be able to uh, find a place as music keeps changing? He is dynamic in person. Um, it's not just his voice. A, he's retained his great looks. B, he dances in a way that few artists can approach Michael Jackson and be electrifying in person. Uh, it's interesting that his first record on Gamma, Larry Jackson's label, Good Good, is doing as well as it's doing. So I think the fact that he sells out his residency in Vegas and that he is still, and, and he's got a repertoire of hits, uh, which is very, very impressive. So I give the Super Bowl and Apple and anyone else that have contributed to this great credit uh, of an artist that shows that we have a long-term career artist and that Usher personifies a very gifted in-person who can do justice to music, <clears throat> do, do justice to music um, when half the world is watching TV. Yep, that, that I think that the, he's definitely going to show up for that for sure. Um, you know, we wanted to give you the opportunity. Um, you know, what are you excited about? What are you working on? What would you love to talk about that we, you know, we've we've gone down memory lane with you, and we thank you for indulging us. But uh, what do you have going on right now? Well, apart from the numerous podcasts like the one I'm doing with you. Uh, oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did one yesterday with 20 colleges got together. I didn't feel I would do it with one. And I did a podcast with 20 colleges, pulled the resources for the 20 colleges. Um, but I am working uh, mostly since I co-produced the Whitney Houston film. Um, and I'm thrilled with what happened on Netflix uh, with the Whitney Houston film and what's going on with airplanes. They tell me various airplane carriers. It's their biggest movie in years on, on flights. Um, and the mail we get. Um, I'm working with um, Jesse Collins and Rob Ford and others to go through the history of our pre-Grammy gallows. This is something that I started uh, but as I began Arister in 76, because Barry Manilow's Mandy was nominated for a Grammy, and where do we have our party? And I came up with the idea, since we only would have had a table at Jason's, an L.A. restaurant, I said, um, let's do it the night before, the day before. And Stevie Wonder showed up, and Elton John showed up, and John Denver showed up, and I was on to a great idea. And I'm personally touched that all these years later, it still gets the most taste-making, powerful audience. Um, over the years, artists could break. That's how we broke. Supernatural. It was an artist that had not had a hit in 25 years. I had signed him, one of my first artists, in 1969. 
Jimmy had uh, Smooth, we had Maria Maria. And how do I break them? It was viewed as Davis's folly. And that out of sentiment, to some extent true, nostalgia, that I would re-sign Santana 25 years later. So I put Santana with Rob Thomas and Santana with White Club and Product GMP on as part of one year's pre-Grammy Gala. And all those from iHeart Radio and MTV, the tastemakers uh, that are there. Today, Tim Cook comes every year. Um, it's 23rd year of Nancy Pelosi. You see artists together that you've never seen when Rod Stewart was hitting big with the Great American Songbook. I had him perform my Grammy party with Lou Reed and Slash, something no one has ever seen. After our Alicia broke huge, breaking as the first new artist that I ever put on in the Grammy party, I said, Alicia, what's your next dream? She said, my, after thinking for a few minutes, she said, my next dream is to appear at your Grammy party with Aretha Franklin. And we have Aretha and Alicia doing the duet, the duets that Whitney had. She appeared there eight different years uh, with Natalie Cole and uh, others. Um, it's been a unique experience. Um, yes, it's been the hottest ticket, but musically, it's because of music and because you never know whether it was Prince, whether it was McCartney, whether it was Sly the Family Stone, they'd be in the audience, along with the tastemakers, along with the heads of every motion picture studio, every record company. Um, Nancy, as I said, has come 23 consecutive years. She always calls me, what day, what day I'm putting it in my schedule. <laughs> um, it's a unique audience, uh, you know, from the likes of Prince to Streisand uh, and Tim, as I said, those that come every year. Two years ago, David Hockney met Joni Mitchell and their lifelong friends. Joni comes every year. So it's a unique audience, but it's the music of seeing artists together uh, that you would never have seen anywhere in your life. And... Um, we're going to put a documentary together and propose it to Netflix and Paramount Plus, etc. You know, I want to say uh, I've never been to uh, Clive's party. However, lots of our co-workers uh, have been to the event in the past. And the thing that I, along with probably every other music fan, has been jealous of for so many decades is if you're in that room, you will see performances that will only be in that room. None of it goes out anywhere else for the most part. Here and there, there have been some performances that have been released, but by and large, those performances are a one night only affair that no one else would have ever bared witness to. So I cannot wait to see what you possibly have up your sleeve with this documentary, what footage might make it into it. I'm super excited about that. Well, that's really nice to hear, thank you. And it's true, what you say is true. Uh, and it's time to open the vault 
and reveal it, and you won't be disappointed. They have been jaw-dropping. I mean, you know, uh, Harry Melville was there last year, and he, apart from his newscasting ability, he's a great fan of hip-hop, and I didn't tell him. He and I are friends, and uh, we did a tribute to hip-hop, and among uh, the hip-hop artists was Lil Wayne, and he got so carried away that he was supposed to do two songs, and he ended up doing five, one after the other, furiously. Ari said, never in my life did I ever think I would see Little Wayne on the, in the grand ballroom of the Beverly Hilton Hotel and be part of your show. He said, it's dazzling, the artists who have... A come, he said, I was just knocked out. Anyway, it's special. That's so amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all that. We are very excited. And thank you so much for telling all these great stories and bringing us a lot of great pop music over the decades. We really appreciate you talking to us today. This has been so great. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much. We also appreciate all the the chart-topping billboard number ones you've given us through the years, Clive. Uh, You've had your fingers in many number ones. So we also thank (laughs) you for those. (laughs) <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having the chart that is the Bible and that we all look to and inciting uh, many, many years for different reasons. So thank you. much to Clive Davis for taking the time to talk with us. He is an absolute pop legend and and it was just great to chat with. I mean, as you as as you have just listened, it was a longer interview than we would normally have. It's Um, our 10th anniversary show. It's special. It's special. It's it's uh, it's Clive Davis who has been making hit records and been behind some of the biggest artists since basically the late 1960s, arguably, Mm -hmm. when he was at Columbia Records. As I'm sitting there listening to Clive, these stories were really interesting. Mm -hmm. And even something that he was not prepared for, which I asked him about, because of course I had to slip in a Madonna question, even though, as far as I know, he's never worked with the woman. Though he said that he hadn't worked with her, he did turn a an anecdote about meeting her into a really interesting story about Whitney Houston and songwriting. Though I, I do have to say, I was a little nervous ever interrupting him. Um, as as you oh yeah have, no we didn't yeah, we no. just let him go. <laughs> um, though though I I hope he did enjoy uh, me asking him what Halloween costume he was going to wear at, at Midler's party. <laughs> He had put know. some thought into it. I think he basically said Phantom of the Opera is going to be like a little mask and a cape. That sounds perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's a very classy, uh, classy costume. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, uh, now it's time for the chart set of the week. I believe we've had the chart set of the week since the first episode. Jason, am I going yeah. crazy? Yeah. Yeah. We used to have really dumb theme music, but now we don't. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Well, 10 years ago. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Do you know where that music is, Keith? Can we bring it back just for this chart set? (laughs) 
it was a duck with a kazoo just having a free-for-all. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Um, well, 10 years ago, when the Pop Shop podcast launched, uh, Katie and Jason, can you name what the number ones were on the Hot 100 and the Billboard 200? Both were new number ones that week. And for the artist at number one on the Hot 100, it was their first and so far only number one. And on the Billboard 200, the artist that was number one there, it was their third number one album. Now, hopefully neither of you have gone back and actually read the story from 10 years ago when we posted it because it would have revealed it. So hopefully you have it. October 2013, yep. October 3rd, 2013. Yeah. My first guest for Billboard 200, I'm just going to steal this because I have no idea on the Hot 100, is Adele. Nope. Oh, that would have been our only or second album. So okay, go, Jason. That, my Hot 100 guess is Royals by Lord. You're correct. It, went to, it hit number one that week for the first time. And I, the reason I that was my guess is because my cover story with Lord from September 2013 was like Royals just hit the top 10 of the Hot 100. How far could it climb? So I was like, it had to be going uh, number one around then in early October. Um, nice. Billboard 200. I So that was obviously the Lord album. This was a couple weeks before Prism by Katy Perry. Oh, ba- is it Bangers? No. Is it, um, can we know if it's like a solo, female, solo, male group? Solo male. Solo male. Okay. Solo male. Still very relevant today. I was going to say, no, Bruno Mars is too early. He didn't have three by then, I don't think. No. Ed Sheeran? No. It was. also too early. Oh, man. Like superstar, like enormous (laughs) artist with like tons of number one. Justin Bieber? No. Timberlake. No, close. Timberlake, I think, was number one the following week. Yeah, it was 2020 Experience Part 2 was right around mm-hmm. there. Um, this artist geez, is literally little... all over our charts right now. Drake? Drake. Nothing was the same. Drake. That's right. It I guess with a chart question, same. you should just guess Drake first, maybe. Yeah. yeah. That should have been the strategy. Um, so there you have it. Ten years ago this week. Lord and Drake topped the Hot 100 and Billboard 200 uh, during the what a great week that was first yeah. week Holy of the Pop Shop podcast. That's why the podcast had to exist to talk about Lord and Drake. <laughs> um, all right, uh, I believe we've reached the end of our show. Um, though it doesn't have to be, do we have any more, um, (laughs) special, special, I mean, we probably should get going. Um, (laughs) uh, do we have any other special memories, thoughts, uh, feelings about 10 years of the podcast? All my warmest feelings are about Dua Lipa and the podcast (laughs) because I, we, Keith and I talked to her really early days, like when she had like a UK hit with Sean Paul and had her her in the conference room at our old office. And she was like, so obviously a star before she was a star. And then the fact that she has come back to see us three times is monumental and i also just love her so that like it's just so crazy to me that's like this podcast allowed us to talk to someone like that uh you know four times that's awesome yes um if you don't have anything i can go jason 
I'm just I'm just happy to be here. I'm just along <laughs> for the ride. I'm ready I, to I, come back at, after 20 years. The 20th the 20th anniversary yes, is going to be awesome. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Uh, like, like Katie, I am, I, 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 one, I mean, foremost now, I mean, I, this, this is a vehicle where Katie and I can just sort of blather at one another about, you know, music and pop culture and like, which we'd be doing anyway. Yeah. Which so. we would be literally doing in the office anyways. And I get to talk about charts. You know, Katie gets to talk about John Mayer. Um, you know, I get to ramble mm-hmm. about Madonna incessantly. And then amongst all this, we get to interview big stars um, you know, more than 300 guests have been on the show. Um, and we're very fortunate that we have this platform within Billboard to do this and that we are trusted uh, to do this. Um, all thanks to Jason. That's if right. It wasn't, if it wasn't oh, for J-Dog. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> J- I was a 26-year-old who loved podcasts. That is not... <laughs> Does that explain multiple years of you guys putting on a great show? We've been on longer than than most of all the like all those other podcasts that you listen to now that are huge, that are big. We started before probably all of those. To Darn be fair. Right. Yeah. Except for um, This American Life, but yeah. Otherwise, well, I mean, that's a radio show. Um, Jason, uh, what song should we go out on this week? Well, uh, because 10 years ago, the number or the first pop, uh, pop shop podcast, the number one album, as you just said, was nothing was the same. Uh, I think you got to get out on the lead single from that album started from the bottom. Now we're here. Oh, hey, look at that. That's a great one. All right, everybody. <laughs> see you guys next 10 years or yeah, next week. Yeah, sounds like good. That. All right. <laughs> Bye. Started from the bottom. Now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team fucking here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.